0: You are entering the Freedom Hut.
1: President Trump says a government shutdown may be a good idea because we got a wall that needs to be built and we shouldn't wait and see what happens in that midterm election. Do Republicans have the backbone to back him on this one? Plus, we've seen what the price tag would be for Medicare for all. The short version is wow, that would be expensive, it would crater the U.S. economy, and it would turn us into a shadow of our former selves economically. But it sounds cool when Bernie Sanders and others bring it up, right? We'll get into that and so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This, this is The Buck Sexton, Sexton Show, Show,
0: where the mission, where mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no
2: mistake. America. You're great America. Again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. <laughs> Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
1: It is Buck Sexton.
0: Now
2: my administration is working hard to pass border security legislation, improve vetting, and establish a merit-based immigration system, which the United States needs very, very importantly, very badly. As far as the border is concerned, and personally, if we don't get border security, after many, many years of talk within the United States, I would have no problem doing a shutdown. It's time we had proper border security. We're the laughing stock of the world. We have the worst immigration
1: laws anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Box Action Show, everybody. You're the the president there making clear what uh, the fight is going to be going forward. He is saying that a shutdown is not something that Republicans should shy away from, that a shutdown so that we can finally get border funding and a change to border security and laws around immigration is necessary. I, I got to tell you, if not now, when? We always hear, we always hear about oh, the shutdown is going to come the next time. You know, oh, now is not the time we got an election. You know, this is this is the McConnell. This is the establishment refrain it just gets repeated over and over again now let's not do the shutdown now republicans always get blamed for a shutdown you know what i think that is that's a story that we hear from the media that we should we should at least question if not discard i don't buy it i don't buy it i don't think that it is in fact the case that republicans would get blamed for the media is going to say we get blamed for shutdown the media also said that helsinki that Trump's meeting with Putin was such a disaster that his presidency would never recover. And, you know, does anyone even remember Helsinki? Does anyone even have, you know, a- any any part of that that they look at now and they say, oh, my gosh, how could Trump have been such a, such a savage? Well, I think it all went fine, actually. And it wasn't great. The optics of it weren't amazing, but nothing really happened. And we've all moved on from it. And maybe the policies he discussed with Putin were constructive and and helpful in their own way. You know, we we just we just don't really know yet. But they said that was oh, my gosh, that was the worst thing that had ever that had ever happened. I mean, that was some uh, that was some next level of of terrible. And looking now at what they're saying about a shutdown, I just have to I just want to put it out there, folks. Are we really going to take advice from the other side? You know what happens if the Democrats take the House, starting in 2019, all we, you know, we'll have all this stuff on impeachment, and that'll suck up all the oxygen in the room. If you want very little to get accomplished between now and President Trump's re-election effort, at least from a congressional point of view, Trump can still do what he does, but from a congressional point of view, uh, then yeah, let's wait till after the midterms. McConnell always wants to wait until after the midterms. I don't. I don't see how that's going to be a. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. In fact, our our uh, our friend here, Miss Ann Coulter, who you know, people don't give Ann uh, enough credit on this issue. Trump's whole argument on immigration, and at, there was a time when he would talk about this publicly, but Trump's argument on immigration was largely borrowed from Ann Coulter's book, Adios America. This isn't just a theory. I mean, I I know this was what was going on at the time. Trump read that book and borrowed the arguments from it and defeated, you know, 16 other GOP candidates. and is the one who went on the Bill Maher show when there were all 17 GOP hopefuls and said, you know, who's the most likely to win Donald Trump and was booed and heckled and "Ah, ah-ha-ha. Unlike that roomful... I mean, the, the, the Bill Maher audience is the true hyena arena. I mean, they are... As bad as it gets. Uh, but, you know, Anne went in there and she said that. And, of course, she was prophetic, not just correct, but prophetic. And here's what she says about this wall situation. Play four with these endless onslaughts with oh it was the
0: unaccompanied children and, and, and now what's yeah. the, oh they must, they can't be separated from their parents you know the coyotes and drug dealers um, we can't keep fighting the entire MSM um, the entire donor class 100% of the Democrats 50-80% to 80% of the Republicans that's why we wanted a wall we need right. a rep if he build the wall the media will go crazy it will distract over everything yes. and his polls numbers will go through the
1: roof i think she's right i think she's right and i also think that uh that ann is somebody who doesn't get enough credit for seeing which seeing which way things are going to go with trump you know I, I i do not like this uh i do not like this notion that trump shouldn't fight here and and the republicans are already they're already running for the exits. Uh, that's not the way that it should be. Newt, whatever that's worth, Newt agrees with me. Play five. He's got to be
3: firm. If, if, if this is the fight he wants, he's got to go to the country. He's got to explain it. He's got to tie it to illegal criminals and to people who we know that for, as facts. I mean, you go around the country, you find these incidents, uh, people who've been killed, people who've been tortured, uh, people who have been raped. Uh, and I, you look at the total volume of fentanyl and of opioids that come in across the border. Uh, and I think the president can make a very strong case.
1: We have over 60,000 Americans a year dying of drug overdoses. A large percentage of that tied directly to illegal drugs crossing the border. And you're going to tell me that there's not there's not a political will or or, or enough of a political movement to do something about it. I, I refuse to believe that. I, I certainly hope that's not the case. I do not believe that is the case. But Trump has to fight. Democrats are willing to. They're willing to uh, let America dissolve through open borders, through a dissolution of American culture, through a, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting, I'll, I'll take a moment from, this is not really in monologue mode here, I'm just, this is just Buck talking to you for a minute. I thought this was so interesting. I was speaking to a former U.S. ambassador to Mexico. And this is a guy who's very favorably disposed, disposed towards the uh, Mexican people, obviously a fluent fluent Sp- uh, Spanish speaker and, uh, uh, you know, is lived there for many, many, many years, and on top of being ambassador, and I just said, you know, why do we have thirty thousand plus murders a year in Mexico? Another statistic you don't hear much about: murder murder rate in Mexico higher than it's ever been. You look at the murder rate for uh, the the worst murder rates in the world in terms of cities that are not in a state of war, right? Just that are cities that have have uh, Criminal homicides, a lot of them are in Latin America, and a lot of them happen to be at the very top of the list in Mexico specifically. But I asked, I said, so why does Mexico, with a a neighbor to its north that's the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world, that is a benevolent neighbor, I know people, oh, no, yeah, we are, we're a benevolent neighbor, and, you know, Mexico doesn't really have any real national security concerns, doesn't have to worry about being invaded, doesn't, you know, why is it so... The government, so dysfunctional. And I just, asked, I just want to know, because I'm not a Latin America guy. I don't speak Spanish. I'm not a Latin America specialist. I know more about the Middle East than I do about Mexico. And he said, well, you can start with the fact that a very small percentage of um, Mexican murders are solved and prosecuted. And then extrapolate that down. I think he said it was 3%, by the way. I mean, it was a shockingly no, low number. Well, I, I, It's so low that I feel like I must have misheard him, and maybe I did, but I think he said 3%. Maybe it was 30 but I, I think he said 3%. Which, think about that. 30,000 murders a year in that country, and 3% of them are solved? Prosecuted? Um, and then he said it's really a rule of law issue. And that culturally... The rule of law is viewed differently. And I said, well, what does that mean exactly? And then the microphones came out and it was time to sit and do the interview and we didn't really get to get into it. But I thought that was very insightful. The rule of law is viewed differently. Hmm. I think people, that's one I'll have to chew on a bit more. But why is Mexico so dysfunctional? Because people have a belief that they don't have to obey the rules and they won't be punished if they don't. And that there's a this is kind of the the cultural sense of, you know, do you do you stop at a stop sign just because there's a stop sign or do you always check and see if there are cops who are going to catch you? If your first impulse is to always see if there are cops around to enforce it, that's that means something. Uh, but you know, we're we're fighting this yeah, that, that's just an aside, but we're we're fighting this battle over over the wall and over dealing with immigration at our southern border. And we don't have time. We don't have the ability to delay this. Um, the, the Democrats are willing to not just amnesty the 11 million people that are in this country illegally, just wholesale amnesty them, but also to encourage more entrants all the time. I mean, the stuff that, when you, when you think about how, you have people that are putting their children and themselves in jeopardy and breaking the law to come to our southern border and use children as props to get into the country, in some cases. right? They're willing to uh, uh, to use children as the wedge that will launch them into, into America, into the interior. And you think of what the Democrats are willing to say about Immigrations and Customs Enforcement agents and the Trump administration. They're Nazis, this is the Gulag, this is prison for babies, all this stuff. Not taking into account that a lot of Immigration and Customs Enforcement are actually former military, so they're really just spitting on veterans who are working in Immigration and Customs Enforcement now. They don't think twice about that at all. Uh, I think the Democrats are lost on this issue, meaning that I think that they, they will never turn back and become a party of rule of law at the border. They have given up. They have decided that, or not given up, they've embraced. They've embraced this notion of importing new voters to replace the ones in this country that won't go along with them. And we all understand this, and, and the, the Democrats, they won't like this, they won't want to hear about it, but uh, people that come to the country from the third world not speaking English are going to need, and, and I really lose my patience with these people, oh, no, they they, they contribute more to, to GDP. Yeah, that's just like saying they do things. Everyone does something. Everyone has to... Be involved in some kind of activity. Yeah, they buy things, they eat things, they do things. Sure, they can they contribute to GDP in some way. But if you're looking at in the aggregate, are we better off by bringing in people who, one, their first act on U.S. soil is to violate the rule of law. That is their that is by definition their first act is to disregard our laws, and then are told that they are owed something once they get to this country because we're not doing a good enough job giving them stuff as a country, right? That's the Democrat line now. Oh, they're not, you know, we need to give them Obamacare. We need to give them free school. We need to give them free college. We need to... And we think that this is going to be better for a country that's already $20 trillion in debt. How? I return to a, a central theme of, of the show these days. Uh, the Democrats are unserious but dangerous. And, and I think that the shutdown, I think the shutdown needs to happen before, um before the election if we will not fight now when will we fight if we're not going to make a stand i don't know if there's ever going to be a chance after this folks i'm really i'm not going to sit here and do the whole oh this is the most important election of our lifetime Everyone says about it every election it's the biggest cliche in politics i get that on the issue of a wall you either make a stand now or it's never going to happen uh, I I can't guarantee you I'm right on this one, but, man, I would put serious money down on it. What, do you think a is going to happen if the Democrats take the House? Please. If it doesn't happen now, it's never going to happen. If it never happens, the country is sliding deeper and deeper into an open border status where it will cease to be the America that we know. It's just, the, just the reality, folks. 844 900 hundred two28. 25 if you want to chat 844 900 buck. Do you agree with me? Should Trump push for the shutdown or am I being too aggressive? Am I being a little too buck wild here? Let me know and we will be right back.
0: But that stuff that President Trump just came back to say, we need to put this to rest. He's been saying this all the time. And if anybody who has anything to do with President Trump is watching this, please send him this message. This 2.6% economic growth, it is for one quarter. You can spike growth for a quarter all sorts of times. In fact, do you know how many times during President Obama's eight years, growth was 2.6% or higher? 14 quarters 14 quarters one more
4: time say it again 14
0: times during president obama's administration growth was 2.6% or higher eight times it was 3% or higher so donald trump just has to get off of this gdp kick it's just nonsensical and it's 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 disingenuous i don't know how many different ways i can say this he
5: needs to get off of it to save himself if he, puts himself, if he puts himself in a situation, if we budget the U.S. If Mick Mulvaney puts a budget in place assuming that we're going to face G, uh, 3% GDP, we're not going to. That no. is a goal, not a baseline. No. And if you want to disappoint the American people, tell them they're going to get that. Because guess what? That's not real life.
6: I've been worried for some time we may be seeing a kind of sugar high. And that sugar highs tend to be followed uh, by much less uh, happy periods. Certainly, if you use the standard of what the administration has held out the hope for—three to four percent growth—there is nothing in any data suggesting that we're moving towards that three to four percent growth standard.
1: So there you have it, folks. That, that pretty much covers it for you. you. Got MSNBC with a couple of like uh, markets experts there uh, saying. Well, producer Mike, when was that from? That was obviously early on this year, right? Back when the uh, budgets were coming out. I, I, I can't hear you, buddy. But fair enough. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a wh- a while back. And then, so so originally it was we're never going to get there. And now it's we're not going to stay there. Uh, it's almost like Trump can't win, right? It, it, when it was when it was uh, advantageous. For the anti-Trump media to say we're never going to hit the projection of 4% that he said we're going to hit months ago, that was the refrain. Now that we've hit 4%, oh, we're not going to stay with 4% or that's not going to – because here's the real problem. Uh, They can't beat Trump on the economy right now. They have no real argument to make. And we all still remember the hostility of the Obama era to private enterprise, private property, small business – there was a real hostility to those things, particularly in the form of government intervention via regulation. And so we see this now as people who have lived through what it means to have a government way too involved in in our business, like literally up in our biz. Uh, so just, just note that all these people that are saying this stuff, they're telling you what they want to believe, not what is reality. Uh, but I'm here to give you reality. Uh, we've got... Some interesting numbers on what Medicare for all would be like. We'll get there, team. Stay with me.
0: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
5: And he said, not by cash. Interruption. Cohen says, no, no, no. But and then Trump says, check. Check immediately it's cut off click Hmm. next thing you hear is don jr he must be talking to don jr but that's erased also so so yeah he erased him sure and the expert the expert is going through it, trying to figure out a few things that can be very hard to figure out like is this a recording of a recording did he cut it off at the time or did he go back into his little laboratory or whatever the hell he had and cut it off it's wild crazy and they're out of their minds he did he he did not in any meeting about the Russia transaction. The other people at the meeting that he claims he had without the president about it say he was never there. Uh, And there are at least four separate witnesses who say that against a guy who's been kind of proven to be one of the biggest liars in America. You, You tell me a lawyer is taping his client, the guy is unethical, he's a scumbag, he's a horrible person. I've never heard of a lawyer taping his client without the client's consent. I never heard of a person like Cohen doing what he did to Chris Cuomo, coming into his office in this building taking out his phone, putting it away and saying, I'm not recording you and then recording him for
1: two hours. Cohen is shady, folks. No question about it. Uh, Cohen is shady. There you had Rudy Giuliani out there making the case about this. And, uh, you know, that there's there's such a media fascination with this one. I, I don't think it's really going anywhere because I don't believe that Cohen has anything on Trump to give. Which means that at the end of all this, Cohen will have not just burned, he will have have nuked a bridge, so to speak. He he will have completely obliterated any relationship that he has with the most powerful man in the country right now. uh, And will have put the country through a real barrage of just sordid, ugh, the whole thing. I, I agree with Giuliani. A lawyer who records his clients, that's terrifying. I mean, this is up there with like a, you know, a, a doctor who sets up a camera in the examination room for kicks. I mean, this is really bad. And, you know, I, I, I see this now as as a point of media fascination because they're saying, and this was the big storyline that I, I don't think we actually even have this soundbite, but it doesn't matter. I'll tell you what it was. That whenever Giuliani says collusion is not a crime, they're pushing him on this and they're saying, well, uh, there's now that they're preparing to tell us that collusion happened. That's just not true. Uh, and you have former Bush administration spokesperson, Nicole Wallace, who's one of these people who has now found a home at MSNBC by being a complete and an and absolute Trump basher, which I don't think is uh, I don't think she would disagree with that as a description. I mean, she she clearly bashes the president all the time. I mean, she may say critiques or criticizes, but. Um here you have this whole fight that's coming up over 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 collusion whether collusion happened and they're already moving the goalposts on this one. I want you to be very clear on what's going to happen here. They're going to say that even if no crime was committed here that there was that it was unethical to take the meeting And so that alone is going to turn into a call for impeachment if they take the House. By the way, forget about all that stuff. Remember, Rod Rosenstein the DOJ a week ago, oh my gosh, he didn't commit a crime. You can't send him off. You can't can't take him out of office. No crime, no crime. Impeachment for Rosenstein, because they like him, needs to be a criminal offense or else there's nothing there. Impeachment for Trump is going to be a political offense. And I actually think that impeachment power has always... Had a political component to it, yeah. You know, if you are, if you kill a bunch of people in a drunken rage, you should be able to be impeached and then prosecuted if you're president. But also, if you're just engaged in unseemly and corrupt behavior, the Senate with the with the House, they mean they should be able to impeach and then remove you. That that is something that that is very real. And as I as I read to you, people in the federal bench, federal government officials have been impeached in the past for non criminal behavior so they are trying to make the case right now they're trying to lay the groundwork for collusion which isn't a crime it is a concept it's a narrative they're going to make the case that the collusion narrative is enough on its own to warrant impeachment if democrats take a majority in the house that's where this is all heading um, and, and they're also saying, remember, we, we've learned almost nothing new about this Trump Tower meeting. All we have that's new, that's gotten this injected into the news cycle, is that is that Cohen says. And now a guy who's a proven liar, who has a lot of incentive—not just—he's not just a liar, has a lot of incentive to lie. Right now, the Dersch, dersh weighed in on this one. Play three. Of course, he'd much prefer to
3: uh, remain loyal to President Trump, but prosecutors have him in a squeeze uh they may have information about his taxi medallions about other kinds of issues that's what they're doing with manafort too
1: manafort apparently made a lot of money doing this consulting stuff for russia i gotta say i didn't realize it was that it was that kind of lucrative um bloomberg says manafort here made more than 60 million dollars as a political consultant in, in ukraine Producer Mike, we are in the wrong business. Did you know this? We should apparently be in the shady political consultant business. We'd be great, dude. We'd be great, you know? You'd be the muscle. I'd be the, I'd be the bag man. I'd be go around collecting the contributions, and you'd come in with two guys named Yuri and Oleg, and uh, they'll do anything you say. $60 million, dude. We could retire on that. <laughs> yeah, but we're too honest for that Buck. I know. We're good guys. We could never. Are you kidding me, dude? He, he'd, he'd, bring out, he'd bring out cash, and and Cash would just start just start being all all cute and cuddly to the yeah. bad guys, and it just wouldn't work. I'm to sick my cockapoo on you. Sick my cockapoo on you. That's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> um, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot you have a cockapoo. He has a cockapoo. That is quite a dog name. Yeah. Uh, so oh, by the way, for uh, this is a total aside, folks. If you have not seen this. And this is one of my frustrations on radio. This is why, by the way, we're going to start streaming some of the show. That's another fun thing that's coming up soon. Um, So we're going to have more video components to this radio show for those of you that are into that kind of thing. Um, So I can actually show you photos of the cockapoo, for example. But there was a, a video that went completely viral over the weekend of a dog. And I didn't get much details on it. It doesn't matter. A dog that's in someone's yard that took a GoPro and is holding it in its mouth. So it has the GoPro camera and is running with it in its mouth. You can see the dog's face, its eyes, and then see behind it. And you see the human beings that are trying to chase after it. It's just, I can't do it justice except to say that you've got to watch it. It's like a minute of your life that is well spent watching this dog run around with a GoPro in its mouth. is really funny. Uh, so, see, there, there's happy things in life, too, folks. That's why people come to this show. I, I give them the heavy, but I also give them the happy, you know, I some shows, it's always, you know, oh, the country's going to the
2: crapper. It's terrible what's happening here. Oh, my gosh, the Republicans have sold out.
1: I mean, Some days I feel like that, too, and some days that's even how I sound. But I, I don't know how people can sound like that all the time.
2: Oh, let's take callers. The phone company's selling us out. They're destroying us. Peace, by. Be-
1: it, it seems a little excessive to me. All right, back to Cohen and, and Manafort and oh, my. So, you know, Cohen's going to say whatever he has to say right now because he's just trying to butter up the prosecutors because they've definitely got him on something. And there's no question in my mind, because when you're a lo- if you're a lawyer who is stooping to recording your own clients, they got you. They got you on something. I don't know what they've got you on, but they got you. Uh, and so that's why anything that he says can't really be taken all that seriously. He says Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting. I still, I take the, the same line that Andy McCarthy has. In fact, when Andy was first dealing with this issue, he was on this show. Um, he was on this show and, you know, I agree with him and that collusion is not a crime. And it may seem icky to meet with a foreign government that's offering. But remember, she wasn't really a, she wasn't a member of the Russian government. This Natalia Veselnitskaya was an intermediary. The a Russian person that has information, and I, I just feel like if we took the Russian thing out of this, if if the Hillary Clinton campaign heard that a French national had information on Donald Trump's financial dealings in the Cote d'Azur, is magnifique, with the crepe and the café au lait. Man, I need a vacation. Uh, but, you know, if, if some French guy... Call him Jean-Philippe, because I want to get into character here. If Jean-Philippe had information about Trump's financial dealings that could that could throw the election at Hillary, you're going to tell me Hillary, hello? She's not going to actually try to get that information? That her campaign's going to say, no, sorry, you're a foreigner? Come on. Not only do we know that's not true in the hypothetical, in reality, we know that the Trump administration, I'm sorry, that the, the Clinton campaign... Paid a foreigner to use foreign sources to not just turn the press against Trump, but to weaponize the FBI against him via the dossier. So all this holier than thou collusion stuff is really hard for me to take. It's, I just don't need to hear it. I think it's all a bunch of bunch of claptrap, bunch of malarkey. I need to find some other like Scottish Irish phrases. Is it's malarkey Scottish or Irish? Producer Mike, his last name he, we call him Quinn too because of his last name. Hey Quinn, malarkey's Irish, right? It's not Scottish. What's the Scottish equivalent of malarkey? That's a good question, Buck. It probably has it probably has an f bomb in it, but like you know, we should find out what the Scottish version of malarkey is, because it would be a fun thing to say on air. Um, yeah, I feel like Clint Eastwood in In the Line of Fire when he just says, "I like the ner- I like the term cockamamie." We should bring it back. That's cockamamie. He just decides that that's something a word they should bring back. That's how I feel about malarkey. And I also am trying to spread nincompoopery, which is a great word, too, which is fun to say. Um, 844-900-2825. I said I would take... We had a, a whole bunch of lines lit If We still have some lines, because sometimes when I talk, people are like, okay, Buck, you're not going to shut up, so I, I'm going to drop. But uh, if we can, we'll take... If, if people were patient with me, we'll take some calls uh, after the break. And then I've, I've got a lot more to talk to you about, folks, because we've got the uh, the cost of Medicare for all. The cost of Medicare for all. Who wants to take a guess? Is it a lot? Is it too much? Too hot, too cold, just right? We will, we will handle that and more. Coming right up.
2: We are doing a phenomenal job. We're setting records, but we have laws that don't work. So we're working around those laws and It's unfortunate. I have to take my my hat off to the border patrols for the law enforcement, to ICE, which really has been maligned by the Democrats. The job they do, they go into these MS-13 nests, the nests of bad, bad people, killers in many cases, and they go in there fearless and they do an incredible job and they get them out. They either go to jail or they get out of the country. So I want to just take my hat off to ICE and the brave people that, have really been maligned by the democrats. I
1: didn't even know the president said that earlier today and I, I totally agree with him. And I've been saying it all along they're maligning immigration and customs enforcement the democrats. It's it's they are shameless and it is shameful what they are doing. We got double Wayne on the line right now. We got a Wayne or a Wayne. Let's start with the Wayne in Charleston. What's up Wayne? Are you in Charleston, South Carolina?
6: Hey.
1: Is it Buck? Yes. Shields high my brother. Shields high. Are you you're in Charleston, South Carolina. That's one of my favorite cities in the whole country.
4: Man, it is mine too. I was first stationed down here in the eighties and and I just moved back about a year ago. It's lovely.
1: Great great food, beautiful town, beautiful ladies. I'm a big Charleston fan. What's on your mind, Wayne?
4: Uh hey, I just wanted to agree with you on this, man. We need to take a stand now on this shutdown. You know, every every season it comes up and it's crazy with the of course we're gonna get blamed. It doesn't matter who's to blame, but we're gonna get blamed. What well, we're not going to do vindictive stuff like shut down national parks and not let vets go into the World War II memorial, uh, it doesn't matter. Everyone that's a government employee gets their check eventually.
1: Yeah, this know? is. Just, I think this is just a media narrative that we need to break down the way Trump has broken down other ones. The, the government continues on. A shutdown oh, is yeah. not some scary—the government know, basically shuts down— Every week, it's called Saturday and Sunday. Like, it's fine, right? You, you don't ex- the, the Russians are not about to invade because the government has shut down yeah. on Saturday yeah, yeah. and Sunday. The military still it's gets behind. paid. They're still in place. I mean, this is, when I was CIA, I mean, like, you know, we weren't about to be like, oh, if there's a shutdown, no more CIA. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah, 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 yeah.
4: Well, they make, they make a lot of the people think that. But in essence, no, nothing happens. Yeah, exactly. And we need to make a stand now. It, there's yeah. no time. You know, and it's it's getting to the point of no return.
1: Wayne, have you Do by it. the way, did you listen to the Jesse the Jesse Kelly and uh Sean Pornell podcast from last week? I feel like yeah. it would be up your alley. You should you should check it out.
4: Yeah. And you know what? And something I want to reiterate that it was either you said it or it was on your show. It was several weeks ago and I caught it. And it's like the thing that these people have against him, and that's the Republican uh you know establishment and the democrats is they're realizing a regular joe can come and do this that you guys think
1: whoa 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 whoa! we gotta drop hey wayne i appreciate but we can't hey you gotta john you drop that one wayne i appreciate you calling man we can't we gotta keep the language clean thank you for calling in (laughs) wow uh sorry about that folks I, i i believe we dropped it whoa callers spicy today spicy But he is correct in that a normal guy can come in and do the crap that the uh, government, we are led to believe, only the experts can do. But, Wayne, you know what? I still like Wayne. Wayne, thank you for calling in. Appreciate it, brother. Shields high. Wayne in Moss Point, Mississippi. Wayne, how you doing? Buck. Buck, hello. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for your call. We got double Wayne tonight on the show. It's exciting. All right. Well, I I want to tell you
6: that I wish everybody could see the interview Donald Trump did with Barbara Walters in around the year 2000 when he was telling her what he thought about immigration. And he said, the problem is that if a Mexican comes into the U.S., he can buy some dirt and own it. The problem is if a gringo goes south of the border, he can't buy property and own it. He can only lease it for 100 years. But if the local mayor or governor likes it, they can take it from him. And so that kind of stops progress. And so he said, he thinks the average Mexican's a wonderful person, hard worker, Christian, loves their family, and wants prosperity, but they're surrounded by a corrupt government and cartels, and they're just in a world of hurt down there. He said, what I would do is I'd say, Mexico, congratulations, you're the 51st state. And if the, you know, right now, if they gave the Mexicans a chance to vote to see if they want to be the 51st state, I think they'd jump on it. And if they did, what do you think Venezuela or Taiwan? Or Crimea would do it. They had the opportunity to become, you know, a U.S. state. So uh, Trump could go around the world and change stuff, and uh, that would put all these other countries on notice. I think it would be fantastic if people would see what Trump said back then.
1: All right. Well, Wayne, I appreciate you thinking outside the box, my friend. Thank you for calling in from Mississippi. Mac in Texas. Real quick, we only got about thirty seconds. Oh we don't have time i wanted to get mac okay fine 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 i know i God, we got so many calls i like to take our calls when we can um we got to talk about hey guys guess what free healthcare isn't free at all in fact it's crazy expensive according to a new analysis about what medicare for all would be here's a short version it would more or less bankrupt the country that's coming up i talk about simply safe home security a lot on the show it's an incredible security system fantastic protection very easy to use well i've got exciting news simply safe is now valued at one billion dollars you know i've known these guys a long time stretching back to since they were just five guys working together okay this is a company that was founded because one guy wanted to help his friends who were burglarized now it's worth a billion dollars here's what makes simply safe so great it is comprehensive protection for your home okay it is round the clock monitoring and police dispatch and you get protection against intruders fires leaks and burst pipes 24 7 monitoring is only fourteen ninety-nine a month order your simply safe system now my listeners get free shipping and free returns visit simplysafe.com slash buck that's simplysafe.com slash buck to protect your home with simply safe today again simplysafe.com slash buck
0: Buck Sexton. Our mission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One all thing. Make no mistake. America, you're a great America again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst, former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
7: It is Buck Sexton. Now we need to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We are the only major country on earth. That doesn't guarantee health care to all of our people. While depending on your income, your taxes may go up to pay for this publicly funded program. That expense will be more than offset by the money you are saving by the elimination of private insurance costs. It is an enormous honor to stand with each of you to say never again in America does anyone go bankrupt just because they got sick.
1: Free health care for everybody, baby. That's the promise of the Democrats these days. Medicare, Medicare for all, as Bernie says. Medicare for all. Well, there's a problem with that, of course. As you know, it's not free. And this is something that that sounds good, and it is increasingly a rallying cry of the Bernie, Warren, Ocasio, Cortez wing of the Democrat Party. But you know what's amazing about this, folks? None of them know what it would cost. In fact, Bernie Sanders, via spokesperson, has admitted they don't know what it would cost. They don't know how much money it would really take to do Medicare for all. Uh, They just they do not know. Well, now we have some idea. Thanks to the Mercatus Center, a libertarian think tank at George Mason University. Uh, which is, I believe, paid for by, in part at least, receives money from the Koch Foundation, and the Koch and Coke uh, also sponsors my show, Rising. So full disclosure there. It's fun to do full disclosure stuff now. It's like I feel so corporate, you know. But they've done this cost analysis, and here's what they find out, folks. Who wants to take a guess? What would it cost for Medicare for all? 32.6 trillion dollars that's right trillion with a T that would be the cost of it to pay for this remember that then that's supposed to be the 20, the 10-year cost from 2022 to 2031 after an initial phase in and the increases in federal spending over 10 years range from 24.7 trillion to 34.7 trillion. So let's call it know, roughly $30 trillion is what it would cost to do that, what it would cost in, in overall spending the economy. How would you do this uh, given what our current budget is and given what the, the the stresses already are of having such a large debt? We are over $20 trillion in debt. And you'd basically be looking at a doubling of the income and corporate tax. That, and that's just to, to try to make the numbers work. I mean, you're looking at having Sweden level taxation. And as I've been saying, Sweden and Denmark and these countries that the Bernie Sanders of the world point to as, oh, look at how well it works there. They're moving away from their model, which they have not had for very long, by the way, of these massive welfare states because they view it as unsustainable. Uh, They recognize mathematically it's unsustainable. In the case of Norway, they have so much in a sovereign wealth fund that it offsets a lot of their welfare spending. But these aren't truly socialist countries, as I've noted. They're not socialist in the sense that the government is in control of the means of production. The government hasn't nationalized industries. They are high-tax social welfare states. High tax, though, is where this starts to run into some real problems for folks. And this is where the Democrats, this is where all of a sudden they have to deal with the unpopular aspects of this, or at least they should have to deal with it because it's not enough to tax the rich. You will not get $30 trillion of additional revenue, which is a word I hate because what they mean by that is money that we are taking from you under threat of force. That's what taxation is. You don't pay it. They're going to come and take you and take away your freedom and take away your stuff. Uh, you're not going to get $30 trillion by raising the marginal tax rate on the 1%. No, 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 no. Everybody listening to this, if you were going to have a Medicare for all system, everybody listening to this would be looking at an increase in their in their income tax, increase probably in their state taxes as well. Just taxes across the board would, would go up. Uh, and if you were making, you know, Twenty-five dollars to $150,000 a year, you would have to pay substantially more in taxes. So that's going to cover a lot of us, right? We're all going to sit there and think, ooh, this is going to hurt. Uh, and then you get into what would that also mean? What does that mean for the broader healthcare system? You know, one of the problems that I see with the way that the left approaches healthcare care is, is that the, one, of the, one of the central, let me even step back further from that. A central false promise of the Democrat Party today, and it's really a a fallacy of collectivism as embodied by the Democrat Party. But a central fallacy is that they can protect you, that it is their job to protect you from bad choices. That they can make bad choices something that will not really affect you and that that is their role. Uh, And also they can protect you from the realities of other people's choices. And you see this with the way the healthcare market would work. If everyone's bills, if your healthcare bills were being paid by somebody else, always in their entirety, you would have lower incentives. I would have lower incentives to try and stay healthy. Uh, I would have no financial incentive to make lifestyle choices that are more more conducive to good health. Uh, you know, and this is where you start to run into problems. People don't like the personal responsibility aspect of healthcare and healthcare spending. Look, I'm all in favor of health insurance, meaning that when somebody has a, you know, we should basically all have insurance. Uh, we should we should all have a a healthcare marketplace where, you know, you, you 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 just like you do with a car, you pay a certain amount, and above a certain uh, threshold, you know, the insurance kicks in, but. You know, our first cost after, you know, housing probably, or maybe it's our first cost even before housing, should be preparation for some level of, you know, medical coverage for ourselves. Uh, You know, that should be baked into our expenses. I mean, this notion of going and paying $20 or $15 or whatever it is you pay as a copay all the time, and that's your only, that's the only dollars and cents that you feel exchanging hands over your health care. That's a bad, it's a bad habit we're all in. Look, I'm in it too. That's a bad habit we're in, though. Uh, the The truth is that we are generally sheltered from the realities of our health care costs in ways that distort what's really going on. And that's not good. That's not good. We should all be covered above 5000 or $10,000 of legitimate health care expenditure. And below that, we should all be paying for it. Like you would with a car. You don't, you don't send a, a note into your insurer... When you need new gas, you don't send a note into your insurer if you're, you know, you you need to replace your stereo system or something. I mean, you know, that's on you. But if you if your car, you know, hits a tree going 40 miles an hour, like, yeah, then you said, you know, then you hit the insurer. We all need that coverage. And I agree with that. I mean, that's a smart thing to do. Uh, And that should be made. But it would be made more available and costs would go down if we allowed the free market to work for everything below that catastrophic threshold. But people have gotten used to this notion of somebody else is going to pay for your health care. Somebody else is going to pay for your health care. And I'm going to make myself really unpopular right now, but Medicare is part of the problem. Yes, I'm going to say it. And I, I, get, I get angry people that know that I love them and they love me. Listen to the show. They get mad at me when I say this, but I'm telling you the truth. Medicare is part of the problem because the average Medicare recipient will take out twice in benefits, what they paid in over their entire life cycle of Medicare taxes. So you're getting double average. Now, that's not true for everybody, but that's the average Medicare recipient is taken out twice. And a huge chunk of that is very, very late in life, end of life care. Huge chunk of that piece. So somebody else is actually and that somebody else is us, meaning generations that well, not us. Some of you are getting Medicare right now. And now, by the way, this, the government's forced us all into this situation. Right? This is this is government planning. So this isn't. I feel like sometimes when I talk about entitlements and Medicare and healthcare, people feel like I'm calling out. Individual. I'm not calling out an individual. Look, I'm going to want Medicare too, right? I, I'm paying my taxes now. I'm going to want it. This is the promise they've made. You know, same thing with Social Security. I'm going to want it. Probably won't be there by the time I retire, but I'm going to want those things. I'm going to feel. Enti- I'm going to feel entitled to those things because the government's made me a promise. And they have to keep up their end of the bargain. And I know with a lot of you who are on or are, are getting Medicare right now, you feel like government made me a promise, took money out of my paycheck for you know 40 years. Damn it. It's time. I get it. But I'm just saying from a long term sustainability aspect of it, Medicare relies on future generations picking up a big piece of that tab. That's just the truth. So everyone likes somebody else to pay for their health care. Everyone wants, you know, and, and I look, I feel the same way. Right. I. I have had that experience of going into a doctor's office and paying 20 bucks and getting really good care and being like, wow, I've got great. That's actually when I worked for the federal government. My insurance was great. That's one of the things I miss about the federal government, actually. Insurance is just fantastic. Uh, changes again, the private sector. When I was at the NYPD, my insurance was like not insurance. It was it was Obamacare before there was Obamacare. It stunk. Anyway, uh, so I've also had that experience of, yeah, this visit's not covered, even though obviously it's medically necessary. Can you give us $800? Thanks. I'm like, uh, I guess I have a credit card I could put it on. I've had that experience, too. But but the cost of this has to matter because the cost always matters. It's just a question of who somebody always pays. Just a question of who. And Bernie Sanders, for all the promises about how it's just going to be the rich, that is a lie. And think of all the waste and fraud and abuse. Right now, Medicare, because it's a government-administered program, has roughly 60 to $80 billion a year in fraud, including the close friend of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, gov- I mean, uh, Dr. Melgin, who was an ophthalmologist in Florida, who did an $80 million scam on Medicare, but somehow... They were just friends. Menendez had a hung. One of you pointed that out to me, by the way, I got that correction. I said he was acquitted. He was not acquitted. It was a hung. It was a hung jury. So thank you for the correction. Uh, Menendez had a hung jury and they chose not to retry him. Uh, but. This program would have a tremendous amount of waste, fraud and abuse in it. I think health care standards would go down dramatically. And I just put it this way, you know, right now, I mean, heaven forbid you're sitting there. You know, you find out that you have a life-threatening illness. Would you rather be sitting wherever you are in the United States? You'd rather be sitting in the United Kingdom and hoping the National Health Service has got you covered? I think a lot of you know, I think I think the answer is pretty clear. And and Bernie Sanders, they're offering a mirage, just like the mirage of land redistribution in a place like Venezuela. or It's happened in so many countries, right? We're going to give... More of the land to the people, to the poor people. They'll farm it better. They'll do a better job with it. No, this leads to disaster. Um, we are still in the early stages. Some of these European social welfare state experiments that we've seen going on, we're, we're in the early innings of how that's really going to turn out. I think that they're all, they have all been turning away from it. Uh, they have realized that they can't continue on with what they have. And then I would also point out, and maybe this feels a little secondary to all this, but Sweden coming up with a lot of great new, uh, great new pharmaceuticals these days. Sweden doing a lot to cure cancer. You you, you think that an HIV vaccine is going to come from Norway or the United States? More likely. You, You think that incredible breakthroughs in medical technology that will give people back their lives. Uh, Are they more likely to come from us or from some tiny socialist countries in Europe? See, I just did a uh, democratic social uh, socialist countries in Europe. Uh, I think we all know the answer to that, too. But 30 trillion dollars, everybody would have to pay. Everyone's paycheck would get just gobbled up by the government so that you would have access to to health care. And by the way, by the time. The generations who are young and who are and they're earning in their peak earning years when I say young, I mean peak earning years by the time they might be eligible for Sanders, Medicare for all. We'd realize this is crazy. This is a catastrophe. And they'll have given away their their best earning years, their their uh, most productive years. In their careers to the government in large part. You want to work for Uncle Sam for six months of the year? That's what Bernie Sanders is offering for you. Show up. Do your job. Every day, work hard, deal with annoying bosses, deal with the possibility of being fired and all the other things that we all know come from work. Do all that for six months of the year. And then on the first day after that six month period, the second, then you get to actually start putting money in your bank account to feed your family, to pay your rent. Is that the country you want to live in? Do you think that'll be a better, more prosperous country? That is the country that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Ocasio-Cortez and all the rest of them are offering to you, paying about half of your income in taxes, no matter what you're earning. Doesn't sound like fun to me. Doesn't sound free at all. It actually sounds like the antithesis of free or freedom. We'll be right back. The FBI calls home title theft one of the fastest-growing crimes. Brace yourself. Because having your credit card stolen is nothing compared to the hell that you are in for once an identity thief takes control of your home's title. Uh, Look, folks, I'm telling you, I saw a demonstration of this process. Uh, Home title lock walked me through how easy it is for the bad guys to just create a forgery online and then get that passed through, even have it notarized, the forged statement, and then have the ability to take out loans against your home, okay? It's really easy for the bad guys to do. Home Title Lock can stop them in their tracks. For just pennies a day, Home Title Lock protects my most valuable asset, my family's home. Register now for a free analysis and discover if your home's title has been compromised. That's a $60 value free. Visit HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com for a free analysis in value.
3: You have a whole bunch of Democrats who are either college professors or lawyers who don't have a clue, who've never created a job, who have a a theory that they call socialism, which is basically big government bureaucrats running your life. Uh, They openly despise business and attack business all the time. And then they are surprised that that doesn't encourage people to create jobs. Then you get a brand new president who is a businessman himself, an entrepreneur, a job creator. He gets the process. He believes in you keeping the money you create so you actually have an interest in going out. Small businesses spring up all over the country. Uh, we were just out visiting my mother-in-law in Wisconsin. Every small town you go through has signs up for help wanted. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is such a huge change from the Obama years where there was no economic growth. There was, you know, the Obama team did a great job if you love food stamps and a terrible job if you love jobs. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the truth is the Trump team is the opposite.
1: Look at Newt letting it rip there. I, let you, I really gave Newt a lot of airtime there. I thought that was particularly of the Newt rants. That was a particularly strong one, Mac in Texas. You've been very patiently waiting, sir. I meant to get you in before. What have you got for us, Mac?
7: Well, I have been patiently waiting, Buck. And and let me just say this: I I I think I feel as if we have a kinship, you and I, because we're both Irish, we're both Catholic, and and you're probably somebody I would like to go play darts with sometimes. But my
1: friend, all true,
7: your your bumper music has got to improve. You've got to do something <laughs> about the bumper music.
1: Okay, we I'll we can you, we can improve. I'll We're actually trying to link. do an overhaul of the music, so I'll take I'll take that under advisement.
7: I'll I'll send you a link, but that's not why I called. I was on hold so long. I just had to say that. I'm sorry, uh, but uh, I wanted to let you know Malarkey is actually an Irish surname. Uh, the clan spelled with a C, not a K. In case the social justice warriors are listening, the clan is in southwestern uh, Ireland and they are known as the Malarkies, and uh, you can look up their coat of arms and everything. How it got to be a pejorative for the equivalent of Boulder Dash or whatever, uh, and not to use the words that Wayne used earlier, uh, the, the, uh, the reality is I think that came from the Boston police. At the same time, they developed the term paddy wagon, uh, hmm. which is also a pejorative term.
1: Indeed. A police wagon full of pa- of Irish people named Patty. There you go, <laughs> on a uh, Saturday night. Anyway, all right. I
7: just thought I'd pass that along. No,
1: it's. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, so thank you very much for that. I'll uh, I'll right. stick it next to my shillelagh. Thanks for calling in, Mac. Uh, what 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 are we gonna hit next? Uh, Mike, I had um. What's coming up here? Oh, college admission stuff. We, I'm gonna I'm gonna skewer Harvard. That's gonna be fun. And then the media has a martyrdom complex. That's coming up. Recently, I've been receiving all of my style tips from the clothing experts at Peter Millar. If you're a golfer like me, you know the name. If you don't, you should because Peter Millar is all about quality, value, and style. It's the most comfortable clothing I've ever worn. Right now, I'm wearing their performance shorts. They are perfect for playing around to golf or just taking care of chores around the house, going out to dinner, going to get some drinks with friends, anything you'll be doing this weekend. If you want to stay comfortable, if you want wicking, breathable, and quick-drying shorts that look great, you want Peter Millar. The performance shorts I'm wearing are the most comfortable pair of shorts I've ever worn, and that's true about everything I've worn from Peter Millar. Right now, head over to PeterMillar.com buck to check out some of my favorites. Be sure to use my link and you'll receive complimentary shipping and a free hat. That's PeterMillar, M-I-L-L-A-R dot com buck. PeterMillar, M-I-L-L-A-R dot com buck.
0: He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck
1: never stops. Now I wrote this piece in on the Hill. you can go read it on the hill.com and it's in response to this meeting with uh, Solzberger, the publisher of the New York Times. The, the title of my piece is "In the age of Trump, the press just can't stop playing the victim. And it's true, folks. It really is the case that that the media loves to uh, talk. And people say, oh, you're a part of the media. Not really, folks. You know, Um, I'm I don't the White House Correspondents Association's not beating down my door and I will not go to their dinner. I would not participate in it. And I said that before the Hill, my organization I work for now, has said publicly they won't participate in it. I think it's I think it's uh, it's gross. It's unseemly kind of pathetic uh so anyway but i'm not a part of that media and i'm also not a part of the oh i'm just bringing you the facts i don't have any opinions or thoughts i'm just the facts you know that's a legacy media trick it's not true it's a fraud it's a fraud i saw last week mark levin called out jake tapper on twitter said he's a fraud high five mark levin so here we go. The, uh, the the fake news and all the freakouts about this. First, it was the term fake news that the news media said felt was a threat to our democracy. Now it's Trump's references to the enemy of the people that has driven the press corps into paroxysms of exaggerated fear. That's from the piece here. You know, they, they've got this guy, Salzberger, meeting with Trump. And the whole purpose of the meeting, we're told, is to tell Trump that they need to tone things down a little bit because... Uh. Journalists are under threat. Essentially, journalists are, are scared right now. There's going to be violence. And I sit here and I think, well, hold on. Are journalists doing a dangerous job? You probably get the, the sense from the media and, well, from them, of course, but also from depictions of them in, in movie and TV. You know, journalists, such a dangerous job. Journalists have one of the least dangerous jobs I can think of in the country. Taxi drivers are under far greater threat in their professions than journalists are. There have been since 1992 eleven journalists killed in America who were doing their jobs or in some in some way targeted or or killed during their job. Eleven folks since 1992. As a journalist, you are more likely to be eaten by a shark than be attacked by a fellow American and killed by a fellow American. Okay, it's just the numbers are staggeringly low, and you think, oh my gosh. You had this guy from The Times, A.G. Salzberger, who claimed that he told the president uh, he was quote, "putting lives at risk, undermining the democratic ideals of our nation, and that it was eroding one of our country's greatest exports, a commitment to free speech. It was not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous." He says, "Oh wow, dangerous. Like putting people under threat. How is it dangerous?" Is it dangerous to their relevancy? Is it dangerous to their careers or dangerous to their safety? See, th- they like to pretend that it's dangerous to their safety. And that's just a bunch of pearl-clutching, pathetic nonsense. All right, D.C. journos and the political class uh, that they cover and, well, and that they consider themselves really a part of, they can strut around D.C. or anywhere in the country with the same self-satisfaction they've always had, all right, just because an occasional Trump supporters calls them the fake news doesn't mean that they're under threat. You know, for people who claim to care so much about the First Amendment, journalists in the era of Trump seem particularly shocked that their fellow Americans have First Amendment rights too. But you know, journalists they like to have this martyrdom complex, and and that's why they're they're taking all these positions now about oh oh it's going to lead to violence. You know, I, I just want to note that. When I would say that Obama's rhetoric about and his administration's approach to police was going to lead to violence, and it did, they went from saying, oh, that will never happen, to, oh, we, we, we had no... We in the media, by propagating these themes of exaggerated racism in law enforcement, we had no role in, in pushing these storylines that then turned into... Something. Remember, there are people who said yeah, because of Black Lives Matter, I'm going to go out and they assassinated police officers. That happened. That's not just a theory or that's not just, you know, maybe that one day. That did happen, but in that case, the media says, oh no, we had no part in creating that climate. Now, with Trump, he just calls them fake news. He's criticizing their work, folks. When he says he's the, they're the enemy of the people, he's not saying they're the military enemy of the people. He's just saying that they're the enemy of truth, which is what, well, at least that's what I call CNN these days, but no one really thinks this is going to lead to violence, and it hasn't led to violence. Meanwhile, Trump supporters are being attacked for wearing MAGA hats, and they're being spit on, and you know, Trump administration officials are being harassed and kicked out of establishments. and All that is happening, but we're supposed to be worried about the press? The press is a very fortunate bunch, and I consider myself in that capacity, too. Because all of you listen to me, I get to do a job I love every day, so thank you. I am very fortunate. I don't walk around, though, like these other guys do. Oh, it's so hard my job. There's so much threat. Yeah, I get death threats, and people say terrible things to me. Who cares? It's part of the job. It's what you deal with. People are savages. You deal with it, right? But These journalists, though, really, I got to bust out the world's smallest violin for them. I mean, give me a break. New York Times saying, oh, they're under threat. They're, not, they're under threat of irrelevance. That's the only threat. We'll be right back. Some of you may think that the whole affirmative action college kerfuffle right now isn't something that really concerns you or it's not that big a deal or who really cares. Well, I want to tell you, this does really matter because these universities have become bloated with power and influence and money. And also, they are pushing a lot of national level policy. And if the left loses on this admissions affirmative action battle, it'll affect a whole bunch of other social policy that they've been pushing. That is essentially bias that they like. Bias that they think is a good thing. Let me give you the latest on this one. Uh, Harvard has had uh, to share... Some insider details about its admissions process. And first of all, you you learn some of the jargon out there. Lopping tips and the Z-list, for example. This was the New York Times. Bias lawsuit explores Harvard's admission secrets. And what you see from this whole process is that there's a lot of horse trading and shenanigans going on behind closed doors. Because there are far more highly qualified applicants for all these slots than there are slots to give to people. Here are just some statistics. 40,000 students apply each year to Harvard University, right? The most famous university in the world. 2,000 are admitted for 1,600 seats in the freshman class. The chances of admission are under 5%. 3,500 students had perfect SAT math scores. 2,700 had perfect SAT verbal scores. And more than 8,000 had straight A's. Well, that just goes to show you, by the way, the need for standardized testing. Because, you know, if everybody's getting straight A's, too many people are getting straight A's, if you know what I mean. But the reason this is such a big fight is because the social justice left and this is true at the highest level, at the most elite levels of of government and academia and professional life too. You know, I, I remember here. Here's here's a quick aside. I had a friend who told me that he at a major company. Uh, this was this was years and years ago. He um, said at a, at a diversity event. He said at a diversity event to a student or to a, a recent hire brought in through a. Remember, they called it a diversity hiring event. And he said, oh, I'm just I'm I'm so glad that we're really we're really upping the diversity here. And the person who had been hired through the diversity event, that's what it was called, filed a complaint. Felt that by somebody saying that somebody was hired at the diversity event and therefore they were increasing their diversity, felt that that was a slight. Hmm. Now, I I know that sounds like maybe something of a of just a random aside, but that really goes to the heart of what's going on with this whole affirmative action policy. You have people who are being given an advantage or a disadvantage because of their skin color. And yet, if you were to ever say to somebody, hey, were you given an advantage because of your skin color? That's racist. Meanwhile, the policy that Harvard engages in is, and increasingly we see explicitly, yes, Sometimes your skin color is going to be used to give you an advantage over other people. And the corollary to that is your skin color will be a disadvantage in some cases if you are white or if you are Asian. Harvard can play all the games that it wants. And you can see they're trying. So, oh, they're saying these are trade secrets. That's right, folks. Harvard's Harvard's admissions process is now considered a trade secret. Why is that, Shouldn't it be the easiest thing in the world? We take the most impressive, highest achievers we can. Shouldn't that be the... Oh, but be, see, that's not the policy. Harvard is engaged in this massive social engineering effort uh, because they have too many students with perfect grades. They have too many students with perfect uh, board scores, SAT scores applying. They do all this other stuff. And that's where you get into lopping, tips, and the Z-list, as this New York Times piece says it. And these are the uh, insider terms... And they have this at other schools too. They have different depends on what the school is and, and how they do it. Uh, but you know, lopping is when you have people that are on the bubble and you chop them down, meaning that they're close to getting in, and you'd say we've got to just whittle this list down even more. They get lopped. A tip is somebody who gets a little extra advantage because of something. And the Z list is the essentially uh, the front, you know, the 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 uh, the money the money list somebody who knows somebody in what they call the advancement uh, office, uh, you know, which is if you're come from a really rich family or a really rich family wants you in, you might, you might get on the Z list. So look, it's not just race that, and I get that right. They built athletes get a preference, but again, athletics is at least based on merit. Uh, but a- athletes get preferences people that have particular skills. Um, you can argue, and I'm open to it, that it's not, Part of a meritocracy to take the children of alumni called legacy admissions or to take people who are just really rich. But I would say, yeah, but they're also they're they're running in effect. They say it's a nonprofit, but it really is a business uh, and they want money. And these professors pay themselves. These professors get paid very nice salaries at places like Harvard with really cushy benefits. So, you know, they, they want money. And I, I'm not saying that's I'm not saying that's fair or right, but I do understand it. Uh, then you have the whole racial angle. And and people, up until now, and this is where this whole case really turns, because this is going to go up to the Supreme Court, folks. This is a big deal. It's going to affect national-level policy. It's going to affect, if you have kids, the outcome of this challenge right now from students for admissions fairness uh, could change the game of of how these elite schools take people and, and what their criteria are for admission. So as I continue to look at this, I, I just want to note that, you know, Harvard says, well, we have this really complicated process with all this different stuff happening. Okay, that's all true. That's all fine. But uh, on the issue of race, they do pick some races as more uh, appealing to their admissions process based on the numbers of, you know, where they're applying for everything other than others. And Asians get the the unfair deal as a result of this one asians in particular get an unfair and there's just no way around it and when you look into some of the rhetoric that they use they say oh this asian seems and this was really this is i think why this got so got so much uh, attention today because it's it's in the personality metric that they're that the admissions committee at harvard is knocking asians down Which starts to get into some stereotypes, right? They'll talk about how an Asian was, quote, busy and bright, but looks like many others. Very busy, but doesn't go the extra mile and looks like many others. These are all quotes from the admissions notes that have come out in this lawsuit now. Uh, Yet another was bright and busy, but it was a bit difficult to see what would hold him in during a lop, which means that when they do kind of a culling of the admissions. Uh, a lot, just a, a lot of trying to find reasons that are very flimsy to not take Asian kids with perfect grades and perfect SAT scores, a lot of twisting and knots. And then for other students of other ethnic backgrounds, you see, well, you know, the grades aren't great, but you know, the, the, the children of immigrants, that's a big one, by the way. Oh, that's right. The children of immigrants, even better children of illegal immigrants. That's right. That helps you get into Harvard now. So if your parents broke the law, you get a little extra. And remember, I'm using Harvard as a standard. This is true of all these schools now. This is true across the world. It's true at Yale. It's true at Stanford. It's true everywhere. This is what they're doing. This is now commonplace. Harvard is the industry leader. Trust me, this is happening elsewhere. But yeah, that's right. If your parents broke the law, you are more desirable than... You know, say somebody who comes from like a fourth generation family of military service in the Midwest, you know, you're not as desirable as somebody applying to Harvard uh, as somebody who, you know, their parents broke the law and came here and are on public assistance. They're more desirable from Harvard's point of view. I I think that's a tough thing for the American people to swallow. There's a reason Harvard has been fighting tooth and nail to avoid the disclosure of this information because they know it doesn't look it's not about trade secrets. It doesn't look good. And it's because you have these these effete liberal snobs, essentially, of all backgrounds and races at these and these uh, admissions committees that are instituting their own form of social engineering. And, you know, some of you said, oh, Buck, it sounds why are you so hard on these schools? I've gotten some of these emails for one. I mean, I went to Amherst, so I know the I know the drill. Amherst is just like all these other places. Uh, And two, I, I think that this is wrong. Folks, this isn't a, oh, why didn't I, uh, you know, I I think there's often this effort to try and make it sound like this isn't a big deal somehow. This determines the course of a lot of people's lives. This determines, in, in some part, your earning potential for the rest of your life. I mean, these schools are gatekeepers for the rest of society now. And if you want a certain kind of job, at a certain kind of place, you need a fancy res You need a fancy degree, at least to start out with on your on your cv uh, so they have tremendous power and authority in our society and i think they're misusing it i think they're acting in a way that is that is unethical i'll never forget when the supreme court when i was in college looked at one of these decisions and just narrowly upheld race conscious admissions the college president and Amherst said well even if the Sup- supreme court rules against us we'll find a way around it, it breath. he said that in a whole big room full of people i thought oh okay so here we go liberals when they win at the supreme court it's gospel. When they lose the Supreme Court, it doesn't count. You'll see that a lot more coming up in the future, my friends. And we've got much more, so stay with me. Buck Sexton.
4: Permission.
0: Decoding the news. And disseminating information.
1: With actionable intelligence.
0: Russia. One.
2: All. Make no mistake. America. Ready. here,
0: a great America again. This is The Buck Sexton Show.
3: <laughs> Former CIA
0: analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
1: It is Buck Sexton. Now. Look at this! Look at this! Do you like a dolly. go off the dolly. there's a good girl. You're a good little girl, aren't you, Sophie? Look what does this say? Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.
0: Ooh! Look at this, Sophie.
1: Now, you may be thinking, this sounds like a pretty normal session of a, of somebody who is, you know, introducing a, a young child on the BBC. That's what that audio is from. On the BBC to, uh, to toys, you know. Oh, Sophie, do you want to play with the little thingy? Do you want to play with the little dolly? Sophie, is that what you want? Uh, she didn't really sound quite like that, but close enough. Here's what they're not telling you, but I can see it because I'm looking at the video and all the subtext, or all the actual text. Sophie's a boy. Sophie is a boy. The BBC put out this video over the weekend with the headline, well, here it is. Are you sure you don't gender stereotype your children? We did an experiment to see what people really think of little boys and girls. Hashtag no more boys and girls folks we're already at the point where the progressive left it's true in the UK it's true in this country as well in some ways i think we're even further along on the transgender uh, on the transgender social justice spectrum than britain is but i've been saying for a while that really the 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 end goal of much of what we see here is the eradication of gender differences through policy uh, ignoring the realities of gender differences that exist as a function of biology, and this is a perfect example of that. I mean, now now you've got this experiment where they've got a, a a boy and a girl, and they dress them differently, and they call them different names, and they have them playing with girl toys or boy toys. You know, if they're they basically mix and match, right? So the girl is being told to play with all the boy toys and all the you know the dragons and the cars. And they're saying, oh, well, this is, and by the way, they're not going to like where this, if they really push this, the, the leftists aren't going to like where this all goes because they're saying, oh, well, because of the toys that boys play with as babies, that is responsible. Essentially, this is making a, a nature versus nurture argument, and they're saying that nurture here, which is based in gender stereotyping, is the reason for the differential between male and female achievement in math and science and other uh, spatial, you know, spatial stuff? And um, well, why men are more likely to be race car drivers, for example, or more likely to not just drive faster, but also more aggressively. Oh, and by the way, there's another there's another point I need to get to about that in just a moment. Uh, anyway, this is this is what's going on at the BBC now. Hashtag no more boys and girls. One of the problems with this is that it's just not true. If they're going to try to use science to make this case, if they're going to try to pretend that there really is no difference between uh, male and female that is biologically determined, they're going to find that they have to falsify the results. We see this all around. You already know this, right? Some of you listening to this are scientists. Most of you aren't. You already know this. You know that men and women are different. You don't have to be told that men and women are, d- are different. You're, you're fully aware of that reality. And yet here we are where we are being told, oh, not only are men and, w- men and women not, uh, not different biologically in any meaningful way, but if we just dress them differently and treat them as though they're the other gender, that's not going to result in any problem. Or that—that's not a strange thing to do. This is now, you know, the, the cutting edge of of uh, social social theorizing right now. Is well, yeah, just dress a little boy as a little girl, call him a girl's name, make him play with My Little Pony, and you'll see that boys and girls are no different. And that's just not, that's again, this is when I say this is biologically determined. It is biochemically determined. Testosterone results in different thought processes and when I say testosterone, I know men and women they have testosterone, they have estrogen, but higher levels of testosterone result in attitudinal differences. We all know this. you already know this. Why are scientists and really sociologists and social scientists? Well, I've always said, I don't like this notion of a social scientist, right? you're just a, you're just somebody who reads stuff and thinks about things. You're, there's not really a lot of science in the social sciences for the most part. Why are they trying to forget what we already know and have known for a long time? If they were testing and retesting hypotheses, I'd be fine with it. But what you'll see with this is that they will ignore the data they don't like. They will try to either uh, come up with conclusions that aren't there or if the conclusions are unavoidable and they don't like them, they'll just pretend they never reach them. There is some mission in place. There's a, a And it comes from this mindset of radical equality. There's a mission in place to eradicate the differences between male and female as a means of making society equal. And this will lead only to misery and dysfunction because men and women are different. We are different. This is something that you say out loud, as I just did, and it feels it feels almost stupid to say it, but it needs it bears repeating these days. There's really clearly an effort out there to convince people that men and women are not different. And I just sit here and say to myself, I mean, this is lunacy. Uh, this is doomed, doomed to failure. There is no way that this is going to result in happy outcomes. And, you know, th- th- this is also led to some really crazy stuff. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the Swedes, for example, decided that they were going to... Here, here Here's from a piece. A, Egalia, a new state-sponsored preschool in Stockholm. This was from a piece by uh, Christina Hoff Summers in The Atlantic. A new state-sponsored preschool in Stockholm is dedicated to the total obliteration of the male and female distinction. There are no boys and girls at Egalia, just friends and buddies. Classic fairy tales like Cinderella and Snow White have been replaced by tales of two male giraffes who parent abandoned crocodile eggs. The Swedish Green Party would like agalia to be the norm. It has suggested placing gender watchdogs in all the nation's preschools. Agalia uh, gives children, quote, a fantastic opportunity to be whoever they want to be, says one excited teacher. It is probably necessary to add this is not an Orwellian satire or right-wing fantasy. This school actually exists. The problem with the gayly and gender neutral toy catalogs is that boys and girls, on average, do not have identical interests, propensities or needs. And this is this is fantastic, by the way, folks, this is this is really this is from this piece in the Atlantic. Christina Hoff Summers does some really good stuff. Quote, 20 years ago, Hasbro, a major American toy manufacturing company, tested a playhouse it hoped to market to both boys and girls. It soon emerged that girls and boys did not interact with the structure in the same way. The girls dressed the dolls, kissed them, and played house. The boys catapulted the toy baby carriage from the roof. A Hasbro manager came up with a novel explanation, quote, boys and girls are different, end quote. Yes, we are. You all know that, especially those of you who have kids, uh, when it comes to the way boys and girls interact with each other at a young age and the way they interact with the world around them, it is different. Biology is incredibly powerful. And these efforts to subdue biology in favor of this, uh, this obsession with an absolute equality, it, it will not work of long-term. It will, To borrow from Ian Malcolm, life finds a way no but it really will not it's not something they can do i also find it fascinating you come up you come up against this argument the same people that are the little social engineers of these projects where they're treating boys like girls and girls like boys and just seeing what happens they'll say well you know a pacemaker isn't biology and we don't resign to that well yeah so is is being a boy now a condition is it a disease Oh, that's right. They have a phrase for this toxic masculinity. They really believe that we are all better off if we eradicate masculinity from society. You know, you got to think that. Some other cultures around the world are looking at us and thinking these guys don't have these guys don't have long in the in the top seat. They really don't. It's not going to last. They don't understand the very basic realities of what goes on in nature, for example. In a state of nature, there's always inequality, even among a pack, even among the closest natural allies, right? whether you're talking about a wolf pack, a lion's uh, pride, a, you know, there, there's always an alpha. there's a, a primary female. There's you know different relations between people don't have the same you know, I'm talking about now a state of ma- nature, the same access to food, the same access to mating, the same you know the same stature and standing. Competition is reality and competition results in inequality. And male and female compete in different ways and compete with each other more than they compete against each other in many ways in a state of nature. This is stuff that has been known for a very long time. Why is it that you have people that are running these experiments and and clapping for themselves in the process and, and thinking that they're doing something that's really worthwhile. You know, to my point before about uh, about the biochemistry here, uh, he, here's another piece from, this is from the Christina Hoff Summers piece. Quote, David Geary, a developmental psychologist at the University of Missouri, told me in an email this week, one of the largest and most persistent differences between the sexes are children's play preferences. The female preference for nurturing play and the male propensity for rough and tumble hold cross-culturally, and even cross-species. Among our close relatives such as vervet and rhesus monkeys, researchers have found that females play with dolls far more than their brothers who prefer balls and toy cars. It seems unlikely that the monkeys were indoctrinated by stereotypes in a top toy catalog. Something else is going on. Biology appears to play a role. Several animal studies have shown that hormonal manipulation can reverse sex-type behavior, folks. End quote. It's biochemistry. It's nature. It's biology. That's what's happening here. And the regressive left thinks that it can, through social policy, re-engineer all this stuff. They're wrong, and a better question to ask right now is why do they think this is even a worthwhile pursuit? And why don't they understand the costs associated with this? How can they not see that Promoting transgenderism among very young children uh, will result in all kinds of psychological difficulties and confusion later on in life. It's also humiliation for the children, I think, and quite honestly, a form of child abuse. But this is what's this is the cutting edge of the progressive left these days, folks. Treat your little boy like a little girl. See what happens. Call your baby a baby. It's insanity. You know, the the job market is so crazy right now that there are folks who are saying, look, I don't even really care that much about your experience. I just want to bring you in and hire you. Well, guess what? No matter what someone's experience is, you need to know who you're bringing into your company, who you're bringing into your workplace, or who's going to be renting your property from you. For all my business owners out there, for all the folks listening who own property, they rent out to somebody. You want to make sure you have somebody checking up on that possible hire or tenant in a way that is quick, efficient, and all about the details. Global Verification Network can do that for you. They're the only dual-certified, veteran-owned, background investigation and vetting company. They're also federally certified as a veteran-owned small business, folks. They're headquartered here in Chicago. They never offshore your data. They do all of the work here in the States. I know the CEO personally. He's a great guy who's running a great company. You should really check them out. Go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. So this uh, story caught my eye over the weekend, and I don't have much time to get into it today. I'm wondering how many of you have even seen it. But a former Mizzou basketball guard named Terrence Phillips, And I don't pay attention to college basketball. Apparently he was, uh, I don't know, kind of a big deal in basketball world. I don't know. Um, But he released on Twitter a long statement explaining that the Title IX investigation that the University of Missouri uh, held on him about allegations of rape, stalking, and inappropriate sexual conduct was finished. Three of the four allegations were found to have uh, insufficient evidence he, I, I had, Here's what he said. Today I can finally speak. Today the Title IX investigation I've been undergoing for the last six months is finally over. Today I can finally say that I was found not responsible of the allegations against me of sexual misconduct, rape, exploitation, and stalking. I had four com- uh, complaints filed and investigated, and one, unanimously, three of them, he said. So, uh, the investigation is over. And the investigation included a fifth complainant who said that his behavior in class made her uncomfortable. And the university said, well, that doesn't warrant an investigation. When you look into this, based on what I was able to find, I feel like there's a clear. um, Well, this is another one of these instances where someone has no rights of uh, no rights along the process. He lost his basketball scholarship. Okay, he lost the ability to play basketball. And he wasn't able to even uh, have any due process rights. He wasn't able to have any any counsel to confront his accusers. None of that. And this was all done based upon a, I believe, still well, anonymous, at least publicly, complainant A and complainant B and all that uh, allegations against him. He was found guilty of of pushing his ex-girlfriend some years ago by the panel and and he said he admitted to pushing her and he was resp- found responsible for intimate partner violence but the same girl had said she made it her mission to ruin me because she feels as though i cheated on her during our relationship and when i read into this one and this is another one of these cases where it seems like there are some women who really didn't like this guy and you had some of this stuff where um you know they there were there were clear signs of some vendetta against him from some of the women involved not all of them but some of them and this guy loses his scholarship and has his life and his his reputation ruined his life you know altered to be sure and we're to think that this is justice somehow we're told to believe that this is just the way that it's supposed to be I I i keep Wanting to uh, you know, raise the fact that false accusations, when you have no right of confronting your accuser, when you have no right of really anything other than just to sit there and let the process play out, uh, false accusations are deeply damaging, very, very troubling. And I can't help but think that there's no consequences for people that level false accusations in these cases. And this is something that happens. This is something that when, when you look into what goes on here, uh, there are these cases where women to get even with a guy or to uh, in, in some way make a point will level a false accusation. And it, it just there's no consequences. I, I, I don't know. I, I thought that this case was particularly, um, particularly horrifying. I mean, this guy... You know, people are saying that one of the women just straight up, uh, straight up lied. Um, And here's what this guy said. For the first few weeks of this investigation, I cried myself to sleep every night. I woke up every morning with emotions and frustrations that I've never felt before. Some of you have seen me doing photography and think I'm concerned with the situation, or unconcerned with the situation, but you couldn't be more wrong. I've been doing it recently because I have all the free time in the world now, and it's a way to keep my mind fresh and busy while I cooperated with the investigative process. To say I am hurt by what was said about me uh, is an understatement. Uh, I've lost people who I once called friends. I see now they never were. I've lost fans. And, you know, it's, it's just the whole case. Just It's sad. And this guy's life is ruined. And by a Title IX investigation with no due process, not a criminal complaint, folks, university doing this not something they're equipped to do the obama administration pushed them to do this kind of stuff anyway uh, i'm going to follow up on this one later in the week stay with me
0: he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back
1: Well, it was only a matter of time, folks, before we started looking at state and city names for uh, getting a name change because of a history or, or connections historically to uh, slavery or to other uh, politically, well, either, either morally reprehensible or politically incorrect, depending on the subject matter topics, uh, but in the case of Austin, Texas now. In the case of Austin, Texas, we do, in fact, have a, uh, a, a case being made by some that the city of Austin is going to have to change its name. Folks, see, this is perfect because, you know, I'm, I'm going to come down to Austin this year. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing all the folks at KL, KLBJ Austin, and, and we're going to pick a great barbecue joint. We're all just going to hang out and have a, little, have a little team buck party down in, in Austin, TX, Tejas. Uh, but this is just too much. I mean, so here, here's the thing. I, I'm not going to sit here and ever say that there's no case to be made because anytime somebody has any connection to slavery, you can say, well, you know, they that's a that's a, a true a truly reprehensible and moral failing. And even in its historical context, uh, people knew that it was there were people who knew that it was right. There were people who knew that it was wrong. But Stephen F. Austin, who's considered the father of Texas was opposed to banning slavery when Texas was a part of Mexico, which I'm sure the Texans listen to this remember. A lot of other people don't. Texas was a part of Mexico 200 years ago. Mexican government needed money, so they let American settlers come into the Texas territory, and then the Texans fought the Mexicans, won their independence, were the Republic of Texas for a while, and then they're like, yeah, let's join this whole union thing that got going on in America. And they became part of America. Uh, so this is now something that may, in fact, uh, may, in fact, get a bit more traction. We'll see if they change the the name of Austin, Texas. But I just want to point out, which I, I know it's like the liberal enclave of Texas now too. But I want to point out that if you change Austin, Texas, what do you do about Washington, D.C., where I am right now? George Washington owned slaves. If if slavery is going to be a historical disqualifier. Uh, or rather, a, a disqualifier in the present because of its historical uh, wrong. Why? Well, what are the outer limits of that? And I really ask that question in all seriousness. We're going to change Washington. You know, what then becomes our shared heritage? Is the only heritage that we can celebrate in this country? Uh, you know, in terms of the founding fathers, who who do we get to say is okay still? I guess John Adams. Now yeah, there'll be a few. Isn't it interesting? Adams is just way less a part of our consciousness when it comes to the American founding than, say, Jefferson is. You know, people think of Adams. I mean, Look, Washington is numero uno, but then it's really Washington than Jefferson. You know, Adams is, even though he was the second president, is not thought of as quite as, uh, well, I guess we could debate that another time, but quite as important a figure as, as some of these others. I even think people put Ben Franklin ahead of Adams. I really do. Um, but Austin is thinking about changing its name. I don't think that that's going to happen, but it's definitely going to be a, a topic of discussion. As I've said to you, the Boston has to change its name. You've got Washington, D.C. would have to change its name. Think of all the Jefferson County and Jefferson Parish and Jefferson, all the things named Jefferson across the country that I'm assuming are tied to or named for Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and and w- once you start expanding this out, Think of all the cost and the difficulty here associated with this, that the, the name change is not just going to be something that people are able to do with, you know, this would be a thing. You'd have to change all the signs. You have to, you know, and, and at some point we have to say, okay, well, when is when is the, the actual cost too much of this, you know, monument changing slash city name changing slash, you know, college name changing i'm still waiting for yale i'm telling you yale is never going to change its name because people go to yale because it's called yale and yale university as liberal and elite as it is doesn't care that elihu yale was a slave trader they're gonna they're gonna hold on to that name and come hell or high water they're not gonna change a thing Uh, so we'll see if if the uh well the austin city council's already renamed streets that were named after robert e lee and jefferson davis so the confederacy you got you know people that are Tied to the Confederacy, Austin's already gotten rid of them. They're already erasing them from public landmarks and and other places. But are they going to change the name of the city? We'll see, folks. My Austin peeps. You can weigh in. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. By by the way, wait before we go, actually, I've got here that the the cities of Austin, uh, their equity office is is involved in this. And they're saying, to be fair, they're saying that the city's name is uh, requires more analysis. They have two lists. One that's like you gotta change this right away. Immediate action like Dixie Drive, Confederate Avenue, and Plantation Road. But Dixie Drive, are are Dixie Cups now unacceptable? I just I want to know what the rules are here. Does, does Dixie Cup have to change its name? Is is Dixie now the name Dixie racist? I I, I actually don't know. Confederate Avenue Plantation Road those all have to go but austin according to the equity office which was created in 2015 to evaluate issues of racial equity says that the name of the entire city itself that needs more study okay so so there's some additional detail we'll be right back with roll call
0: team buck it's time for roll call
1: Well, it's a rainy day down here in D.C. This swamp is swampy and wet and muggy and uh, you know, lots of humidity in the air. But I am inspired once again because of Roll Call. Because of all of you, gives me a little boost of energy at the end of the show. If you want your Roll Call to make, make it. Uh, go to Facebook.com slash Buck and also, if you want this show to continue to be a success, uh, I need you to tell your friends and family about the Buck Saxton show. Show them how to download it. Send them a link. Tell them about the Freedom Hut podcast. Last week, we did with uh, Jesse and Sean. And we'll work on the audio quality. I know, guys. I know. It was the first time out with that stuff. We had a lot of fun with that. I can tell you that my gear is now in New York and... And darn it, I'm committing. I'm committing to it in the month of August. There will be the next episode of Shields High. Uh, we don't do enough of them for us to, you know, make any money on them or anything yet. So I just do it because I love it. But darn it, Shields High in August. We're gonna have some weeks where there's not a ton of news anyway. So I feel like let's get into it. That's I'm committing right now to doing a Shields High in August, and we'll put it out. And uh, there you have it. But please do check out the Freedom Hut podcast from last week. And uh, I'm, I'm actually ta- I'm, I'm taking suggestions for who you think would be a fun guest for this week. Now, with all that, let's get into it. Uh, Noah, this is again in roll call, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Noah writes, hey, Facebook uh, might not be the best way to contact you about this, but I couldn't seem to find a better way. On one of your shows, you mentioned it'd be fun to get some interns for the Buck Sexton show Just wanted to throw my hat in the ring early and express my interest. If an internship opportunity ever does come to fruition, I would love to know where I can find out more information about that. Thank you, Shields High. Well, Noah, you're very kind, my man. And I can tell you right now, you are top of the intern list. But we don't take interns yet, because I don't even know how we would do that. I don't know if they'd have to come to the swamp here in D.C. or if they'd have to go to New York. But, Noah, we will file this away, and I really appreciate your interest and support of what we're doing here. And... Just make sure if you're going to be an intern somewhere, they actually gave you real stuff to do. I, I did some internships that were worthwhile and some that were complete complete crap lousy fests. I mean, it was not uh, not worth anyone's time, including the people around me who were supposed to be making it worth my time. Wasted everybody's time, but I wouldn't have that. I, I would have interns doing cool stuff for me. Next up here is Charles. Uh, seriously, if this was Obama doing just half the stuff... Uh, you would be screaming for his head. I know you are a partisan liar if you don't admit it, which you want. I'm actually reading this as he wrote it guys. I know you are you two spelled t o are a partisan liar if you don't admit it, which you want conservative ha 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 where not in fiscal responsibility period, not in truth or justice, period. give me a break period um oh yeah. I'm one of those independents you don't care about that will never vote for the GOP from Charles. Well, Charles, um, mm, fair enough. (laughs) But we just go with that. All right, Charles had his say on the show. There you go, buddy. Uh, That's actually not true. I don't care about independents. And I really get excited when I hear from liberals who listen to the show. And um, I'm, you know, look, I, I present it all as I see it. And I'm honest about what I think and how I view things and I tell you when I'm not sure. I tell you when I think I might be wrong about something. And I, I hope that independents recognize that unlike a lot of the TV news anchors that they get information from, I actually know stuff and learn stuff and have things to say. Uh, so, yeah, that was just kind of a swipe at CNN in case you didn't know. Uh, but yeah, uh, well, Charles, thanks for reaching out, buddy. And uh, I do. Gi- I do give a crap, Charles. I do. So on that, I got to tell you, you're wrong. All right, uh, here we get back into some, some nice team buck. Aaron writes, love your show. I especially enjoyed your Freedom Hunt episode last week. It was hilarious. I didn't realize that Sean Parnell lives in western Pennsylvania. I live about 10 miles south of him. It'd be honored to take him out for a beer or two. Please pass along. Also, I believe you're still trying to figure out the buck gear that you sell on your site. Can I ask you to consider partnering with the Operation Hat Trick Program? 12% of every branded item that you buy uh, to sell on your site goes to wounded veterans. Our company helped start this program approximately six years ago. We've raised a million dollars. doesn't cost you anything to participate. You just, you just buy a product from specific companies. Our company wouldn't even make any money off this. Uh, thank you for all you do. Aaron, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, so please, uh, in the Facebook here, give me an email where I can best contact you. I'm actually writing right now just in shorthand. Please give me an email to contact. Um, see, this is, this is in real time, folks. So i got to type it. I'm on a nationally syndicated radio show. Because uh, that sounds really interesting, actually. Sandy writes, someone I don't know responded to my post, was interested in Muslim history. I shared some along with Link to Shields High, and your show also shared a public. I love it. And you from Sandy. Well, Sandy, you are very, very kind. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Aaron writes, Hey, Buck, the top headline today is for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. I'm in the military and I have TRICARE, which covers almost everything at no cost to me. Can you explain why the entire U.S. couldn't have something similar to TRICARE, which sounds similar to what they are proposing? What would it cost every person in tax increases to make something like that work? Could a flat tax not cover everyone? Thanks, man. Shields high. Well, Aaron, thank you for your service. And, and the, your question about TRICARE is uh, the short version. And the short answer is it would be too expensive that you couldn't cover everybody because it would be too expensive, Um, meaning that you or I should say that you would have to have such massive tax increases that it would be somewhat catastrophic to the greater economy uh, and to the private sector and private industry in order to pay for it. Uh, TRICARE is pricey. I don't know how pricey off the top of my head. But I do know also that there's the problem of incentives, which I've been discussing with you here about health care. If you don't pay for it, you will overuse it. Not you, but one will overuse it. Uh, Also take less personal care of one's health. A vast majority of health spending right now goes to elderly care, which is covered by Medicare, but then also diseases that are lifestyle related. And people generally do not like to hear about this. But there are diseases that are affected by choices that we are all making, notably uh, heart disease, diabetes. These are not always, but at least in part, reflections of what we are doing to ourselves, the choices we are making about uh, activity level, what we're eating, just general health and lifestyle choices. And if you are not incentivized for medical reasons, uh, for reasons of cost to change some of those behaviors, that in the aggregate across the American economy is going to have a problem, going to be a problem because you're going to be paying for other people's stuff and they're going to be paying for your stuff and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, but uh, Aaron, I, I don't know enough about TRICARE to get into the specifics of it, but I just I know that if if the government's going to cover all of your health care bills, you are going to go, uh, the country is going to have to have taxes at least double whatever you're paying now in taxes, imagine twice that much. And even then, I'm not sure it would be enough. Michael writes, the definition of a cluster, the Buckster, Parnell, and Jesse Kelly trying to do a podcast over Skype. You know, Michael, we're just, you know, Michael always is, he's always there to make sure I don't get too big for my britches and then to make fun of me for being a Manhattanite who says things like britches. But, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to experiment a little bit here. The Freedom Hut is my, my area to... That's where little baby Buck gets to soar. Gets to just jump out of the nest and just spread his wings and soar. Uh, I don't know why I got all theatrical there, but that's what ends up happening. Uh, Seth wrote in, Hey Buck, it's all in the reflexes. Thank you, Seth. Very kind of you. Uh, Much, much appreciated. Um, William writes, Hold on a second. One of these days, I'll change your mind about Taekwondo. We have show kicks. Then we have counter-aggression skills. Never do a spin, jump, high kick in a street fight. Knees, elbows, wrestling, and punches in a real fight. Fancy show kicks are only for tournaments. But in UFC, I've seen plenty of folks knocked out by a high kick. A rear naked choke. Whoa, what's that? Never heard of a rear naked choke before. And several hundred uh, left jabs. Taekwondo is just another tool in the toolbox. No, William. I know, look, I know that's true. And remember, most of my no, my knowledge of martial arts comes primarily from watching martial arts movies as a kid. So I am not a practitioner. I'm not. I, I've had dilettante level exposure to a number of different martial arts, but nothing nothing substantial. Uh, but I, I read a lot about things and analyze them. And I also just like to talk about martial arts movies. So that's that's how we got to this point in things. Uh, so yeah, like I said, if you have any thoughts for what we should do for the Freedom Hut podcast, let's uh let Buck know. I don't know why I just went third person there; it's being a little weird today. Not gonna lie, being a little weird. Uh, but also, uh, please do check out our sponsors, folks. We're gonna be heading into the uh, the end of the end of the year here. We want to finish out. I guess it's a little early to say that, but it's almost August. We want to finish out real strong. So please do check out sponsors you've heard about throughout the show. Spread the podcast to a friend of yours. A very, very helpful thing for you to do. And, uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. The BuckSexton.com website relaunch is imminent. Not quite not quite there yet, but soon. will be very soon. So that's exciting stuff. Until tomorrow, from the D.C. Swamp, shield tie. Woo! It's been quite a day. I got Black Rifle Coffee in my hand right now because it's going to help me push through the rest of the day. It's going to keep me fired up and on task and in the fight. And if you've ever found yourself wincing at the weak taste of coffee from one of those commie uh, corporations out there, you probably thought, I wish they spent less time on meaningful bias training, bathroom policy reform, and other things that defy common sense, and more time on their coffee that's why you need Black Rifle. That's why I have Black Rifle as I speak to you in my hand right now. In fact, I almost want to just slurp a little. Ah, delicious, absolutely delicious. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com/slash-buck and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffeecom buck for 15% off, folks. I hope all of you will make Black Rifle your coffee of choice. I'm actually bringing it into the office these days. I'm converting all of the hill to Black Rifle coffee. Join the coffee or die revolution at blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off.